Genesis 21, we're going to start at verse 1. The passage is entitled, The Birth of Isaac. <clears throat> now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears th about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said that Abraham, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that's, that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly, because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of your maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the, next morning, <clears throat> early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her, sh on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered into the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And she sat there nearby... And, and as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Amen. Let's pray and then think about this um, Old Testament passage for us. Here before. This morning, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we share together now. And we pray that we would uh, keep deepening our knowledge of you as we read about your faithfulness. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when have you had your trust put to the test? Uh, yesterday I spent some time at Swan's Crossing and I watched as a friend of mine swam through the cold creek. I know it was a cold creek because I swam in it myself. Uh, he swam over to the cliffs on the other side, the tallish rock face. He had a high spirit of adventure and he was keen to climb the rock face to get up to a particular ledge. The way that he did it was to use uh, two vines as uh, types of ropes to sort of shimmy his way up. But as I and a few onlookers watched on from the other side of the creek, I thought to myself, hmm, this could get interesting. Are those vines really going to hold his weight? 
there's probably about 70, 75 kilos worth of weight sort of shimming up that cliff edge. Are they strong enough to put the, the trust of him in those vines so that he can get onto the ledge? Well, for me, it was a bit of an academic question because I was just looking on. But for him, uh, trusting in the vines was a reality. And fear was a reality as well because if he found that they didn't hold at the tree at the top or the vine snapped, uh, he was going to hit the rocks below and the water was very shallow. Could he trust the vines and the things which they hung off? Or would that be a mistake to put his trust in them? Well, I'm going to leave you hanging, so to speak, just for a moment, and I'll, I'll come back to that story towards the end. But today's passage, there's a, a story about trust as well. Abraham has his trust put to the test. God's spoken on several occasions about promises of descendants and blessings that would come through Sarah. But Abraham gets gripped with fear on numerous occasions as it seems his trust in God is eaten away. He wrestles with the question of whether God can fully come through with his promises or whether Abraham should trust in his own ingenuity instead. And we can probably relate to that dilemma at times as well. Think about your life. Have there been times when your trust in God is put to the test? Have you been tempted to doubt that God is in control of your life and your salvation? For when trouble strikes, there can be times when Christians do think they've fallen out of God's will and fallen out of salvation as well. During those times, people can feel distant from God and not very sure about their salvation. Or think about the world that we live in. Have you noticed that there's not always that many Christians that we see in our workplaces? Perhaps unless you work at a Christian school, but um, most other places, uh, we're a minority group. And sometimes we can be tempted to doubt that the gospel that we've believed in, that the only way to salvation is in Christ, may not be right. In those times when we, we wonder about those things, or people tell us we're wrong, our trust can be put to the test as well. Well, we're going to look at Abraham as he's put to the test in his trust, but before we check that out in chapter 20 and 21, it's important to look at the context. And the context is really chapter 19, where we see uh, a story about Lot and the beginnings of two other nations. Lot after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, moves to a, a little place called Zoar. Zoar means little. But while he's there, he's afraid to stay there. And so he flees to the mountains with his two daughters. Now, the daughters don't expect to meet anyone that they can have children with. And so they plot together to get Lot drunk and to have children through their father Lot. It seems their time in Sodom has become a, a ba bad place to get an education. And it's a surprising account to read in the Bible, isn't it? For at one level, we don't expect to read an account of incest in the Bible. Yet, at another level, 
It's not surprising because the Bible's not a book of fairy tales. It doesn't hide the messiness of life. It shows sin and names it and shows the shortcomings of all and sundry. Lot's fear is the thing that causes him to move away from civilization, and his daughters are the ones who anticipate missing out. And so uh, that leads them to some ungodly behaviour. The children that they have from Lot become the, the heads of two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And both those nations weren't God-fearing nations. They uh, worshipped fertility gods. And in the case of the Ammonites, they worshipped the god Molech, who demanded child sacrifice. And so we see the beginnings of two nations that had a pretty rotten start and continue in rebellion to God and live at enmity with Israel. But in the next chapter, in chapter 20, we start to see the father or the head of another nation. And this is Abraham, who is the father of the nation Israel. And we see that Abraham, unfortunately, he doesn't trust God as he should. And his fear leads him to make foolish decisions. He's already had a history of risky behaviour when he descended down to Egypt uh, he passed off his wife as his sister and risked the descendants that God had promised would come through him and Sarah. And here again, we see a similar approach in this passage. I'll pick it up in chapter 20, verse 1. Now, Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while, he stayed in Gerara, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerara, sent for Sarah and took her. This place, Gerara, if that's how you pronounce it, was apparently a region for caravans between Canaan and Egypt. And since Abraham had grown wealthy with uh, servants and livestock and silver and gold, uh, it was hard for him to escape the attention of King Abimelech. In the past, in the ancient civilizations, often different kingdoms or tribes would try to shore up peace between themselves by offering a, a daughter in marriage to the other king. But Abraham is without daughters, and he's frightened. He's got a fear that every king or every tribal leader who he comes into contact with is going to kill him for his wife. And his fear is what drives him away from a trust in God to trust in his own ingenuity. And so King Abimelech takes Sarah without knowing that it's Abraham's wife. And this is a big problem. It was a big problem in the ancient world to take somebody else's wife. As you can understand, it would be a big problem in our society to take somebody else's wife as well. But what we see is that God is in control. God's made promises in the past and he's going to see these promises completed. And so God intervenes in a dream. In verse 3, we pick it up. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she say also, also say, he is my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. 
Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I've kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Abimelech wakes early the next morning, speaks with his officials about the situation. He speaks to Abraham and asks him why he's been deceived in this way. And Abraham mentions that he's been frightened of, of the fact that he's going to be killed for his wife, Sarah. Some have actually wondered at this point, what is it about Sarah? She's kind of getting on in years, isn't she? A bit ancient. And, uh, you know, uh, what's the attraction? Well, some have speculated it might be just about peace treaty type things. Uh, or she might have been remarkably beautiful even into her mature years. It's hard to know exactly. Either way, although Abraham and Sarah make a blunder, they go on receiving a blessing from Abimelech despite their fault. And so Abimelech gives them sheep and cattle, male and female servants. He says to Abraham, uh, my land is before you and, and live wherever you like. And to restore this situation in, virtually in the eyes of the ancient law, in verse 16 we're told to Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offence against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. And since God has earlier said to Abraham, uh, sorry, said to Abimelech, return to the man's wife for he's a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live, that's indeed what we see happen next. Abraham, in an ironic way, he prays for Abimelech and we're told that Abimelech's wife and the, the servants that he's got there, they're able to have children. It's quite an irony because over the last 25 years, Abraham's been praying for a baby and he hasn't had one, uh, and yet he's been used by God to pray for this man that his wife and servants will have kids. And that's, that seems to be what happened. We're told um, God had closed every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Well, one of the lessons and the take-home messages of this part of the Bible is that God is sovereign to bring about his plans and purposes, even despite sin and stupidity. It's remarkable for us to sit back and watch Abraham make blunders like this, isn't it? To see him hand over his wife once again uh, and risk the promised seed through Sarah and the descendants that would come and the blessings that would come to the world. We look back and think, how could you make such a, a mistake? But the more amazing thing is to see that God in his sovereignty can even work through sinful people who make ridiculous decisions. And so what we see is that God continues to bless. God remains in control and determined to establish his plans for salvation and blessings to come through the world through another king that comes out of Abraham's line, our Lord Jesus. The other thing that's intriguing about this passage is that we can be, it's easy for us to sit back and look condescendingly on this, the sin of Lot, his incest, and, and the sin of Abraham uh, handing over his wife. And we can probably look there with a, a high 
a high hand, if you like, and think, how could they be so foolish? But how would you like to have your life recorded in the pages of Scripture for everybody to see? How would you like a record of all the foolish things that you've done uh, written down? How would you go? I was talking to a friend recently about the challenges of growing up in the same, sorry, being an adult in the same town that one grew up in. Uh, that's because I grew up in this town and uh, made childish mistakes and mistakes as a teenager. But as I thought about it, I, I decided that, well, whether you've grown up here or whether you've grown up in the next town, it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, apart from Jesus, as they say, there's no heroes out there. We've all got our own sin. There's all, we've all got our own shame things we've done that we're, we're not proud of. And if our lives were recorded in the same way that these lives are recorded, uh, we probably wouldn't be altogether proud of what's put down as well. And so the message here is that God is sovereign even over mistakes that people made and our stupidity and his way of dealing with our sin is complete. This is what Paul writes in Colossians. He says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. God's work in dealing with our sin is complete so that we can stand before God without uh, being accused. The challenge is if we continue in our faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Well, God knows that we've fallen short and none of us would be proud to have our lives recorded, but God in his kindness has dealt with our sin so that we're free from accusation. Our challenge is to continue with the faith that we have in Christ, solid and not moved from that hope that we've begun with. Furthermore, God has worked in Abraham's life and God's word reminds us that God continues the work that he begins in people's lives. This is what we read in Philippians. Paul writes, I'm confident of this, that the one, he's talking about God, who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. Even to, despite foolishness and sin, God's in control of our salvation and he's going to bring it to completion uh, on the day the Lord Jesus returns. Our challenge is to keep in step with what God's doing in our lives, to rely on the work of Christ and to continue with our faith in him. Now as we move into the next chapter, we see that it's clear that God keeps his promises. God delivers on what he said in the past and in the way that he said he would. There's been much anxiety that Sarah and Abraham have had, waiting 25 years as they've, as they've, as they've prayed for a baby. Finally, this promise of fulfilment comes and the prayers have been answered in God's timing when Abraham and Sarah are very old. Isaac's name is a significant one too. It means laughter. There's a, there's a bit of a play on words here as we read from verse 6. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, 
Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I've borne him a son in his old age? Now when we laugh, we laugh differently in different times, don't we? The laughter that Sarah had earlier when she was met by the visitors and said, you're going to have a baby this time next year, that was a laughter of disbelief, probably mixed with a bit of grief, wasn't it? It's a different kind of laughter that she has now. Now she's at a, at a stage where everyone who hears about this news will laugh with her when she's got little baby Isaac there. And so the kind of laughter's changed from one of disbelief and grief to a laughter of joy. There's a time for every emotion, every season under heaven, isn't there? There's a time to cry and there's a time to laugh. And this is Sarah's time to laugh in joy. But just as we reach this high point in the story where God's fulfilled his promises to bring a, a descendant through Sarah, through whom blessings will come to the whole world, there is something of a crisis and it disrupts the family. For Abraham holds a feast now that Isaac is weaned, he's probably about three years old, and there's trouble. In verse 9 we pick it up. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And there's a bit of play on the words with this word laughter. Isaac means laughter. And here Ishmael is laughing, but he's laughing at Isaac. He's mocking him. And it's interesting to note in this whole section, Ishmael's referred to, but his name doesn't come up at all. His name gets left out. It's part of the... Part of the way, in a sense, that uh, ancient writers are saying, oh, he's, he's not that great a character. If you think about um, Pharaoh, uh, when the midwives, Shipra and Puah, were, having, were delivering the babies that were coming quick uh, when the Israelites were in Egypt, do you remember what Pharaoh's name was? We're not told. The, the author leaves it out. It's why I'm saying, oh, he's such a worthless so-and-so, we're not even going to put his name down. But we learn who the midwives' names are, Shipra and Pua. The same can be said in the, in the book of Ruth, uh, the kinsman redeemer. We know about Boaz. What was the other guy's name? Oh, so-and-so. He doesn't get his name recorded down because he doesn't do the job of looking after Ruth like he should have. And here, as we read it, you, you see that Ishmael's name doesn't actually come up. Okay, well, Ishmael's been mocking Isaac, the child of promise, and by doing so, that turns the heat up for Sarah. Perhaps she's worried that Ishmael might try to, uh, you know, mock and then be a bit nasty to Isaac and maybe potentially harm him. Or she might think that Ishmael might be trying to seize the limelight on Isaac's special day, his special feast. Either way, she... She presses Abraham's buttons when she talks to Abraham about the inheritance in verse 10. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I'll make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. 
Well, in short, Abraham is concerned about Ishmael, but God assures him that Isaac is the one through whom the promises of descendants will come. And yet after Ishmael and Hagar are sent away, we do see there is an assurance from God that he will provide. So I'll pick it up in verse 17. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. And Ishmael goes on to have, I think, 12 sons. Uh, but the Bible doesn't say a great deal about the nation, the great nation that Ishmael's the head of. Instead, the Bible in particular, Paul in Galatians chapter 4, draws our attention to think about, in a sense, whose side we're on. And he uses the story of Isaac and Ishmael as a, as a bit of a visual aid for uh, being free or being in slavery. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul's writing to Gentiles and he's reminding them that they don't need to take on works of the law to be right with God. They simply need to have faith in Christ alone. That's it. And he says to them, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Those who have trust in Jesus alone are children of the promise, like Isaac. He's saying in a metaphorical way, we who trust in Christ alone for salvation, he says in chapter 4, verse 31, are children of the free woman. He's sort of saying, think of yourselves as being children of the free woman. You're descendants of Isaac. You're right with God. You're part of God's family. You're children of promise. He's pointing out that there's a distinction between those who would rely on works of law for their salvation and those who would trust in the work of Christ for their salvation. He makes the point that it's only God's heirs are the ones who are children of promise, like Isaac, who trust in Christ alone and not by any other means. Those who trust in works of law, it could be circumcision, it could be Sabbath, it could be food laws, it could be how much you pray each day or read the Bible, whether you come to church and have the Lord's Supper. You could invent any morality. If you think that's the means by which you get right with God and you only get right with God by doing those things, then metaphorically you've got more akin to Hagar and slavery. The question is, who do we belong to? Are we relying on God's work in Christ for our salvation? And in a sense, we're... We're the heirs of promise. Or are we relying on some kind of works mentality in order to get right with God, in which case Paul says we've got more in kin to being in slavery. But he reminds those who trust in Jesus by faith alone, he says, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. And that's a challenge for us to remain with people who trust God and not rely on our own works. 
In the final section, God blesses Abraham in the land. Abraham dwells in the promised land. And what we find is that other people, like King Abimelech, see that Abraham is being blessed. He sees that God blesses Abraham and he, it seems, wants to be blessed by association. And so Abimelech wants to make a covenant with Abraham, an agreement that there will be peace between them. Peace for Abimelech, peace for Abimelech's children and peace for the future generations. Those peaceful terms Abimelech wants to preserve. And so he cuts a covenant with Abraham, an agreement. It involves the sacrifice of animals. Scott's spoken about covenants in the past. It's a self... Um, well, it's like saying, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, that kind of thing. If, if I don't keep my side of the bargain, may this cutting of the animals happen to me, is sort of what's being said. And so they sacrifice their animals to say that, yes, we've agreed that we're going to be at peace with each other. And in this instance, there's an oath. But at this time, Abraham also gains confidence and bargains about the well. He says, Abimelech, your servants have been seizing this well that I dug and I want you to know today that it's my well. And Abimelech acts dumb, plays dumb and says, I didn't know anything about that, but basically concedes the well to him. And then Abraham gives him seven new lambs as a, a sign that this well is his and that Abimelech's agreed that it's his well and possibly as some sort of compensation. And so the well, called Beersheba, means both well of seven and it means well of oath. And so we see that Abraham takes hold of this well, he is blessed and he's taking up residence pretty well in the promised land. Now blessing for Abraham is different to blessing at our stage of life. We're not promised a well and that kind of thing or lots of flocks and things like that. Uh, we're not promised descendants per se. However, in Christ we, we get a different kind of family, don't we? We get brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a blessing. The blessing we're looking forward to is not some real estate over in Palestine. We're looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth. And the blessings that the Bible speaks about are spiritual blessings. This is what Paul says in, in Ephesians. He says, uh, we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been chosen to be gods. We've been predestined to be adopted as God's sons, brought into God's family. We've got redemption. We've been brought back. And we've been given the Holy Spirit. These are the kinds of blessings that we're recipients of. But this part of the Bible reminds us that Abraham could trust God and that God blessed him. And it reminds us that we can trust God as well. God fulfills his promises. He, he brings about his plans. We can trust God. Now I told you at the start of the talk that there was someone who had his trust in some vines as he uh, shimmied up a tallish cliff on the other side of the creek. Well, it turns out, friends, that those vines were trustworthy in, in the end. And uh, as my mate made it to the top of the cliff and hopped around on the ledge, uh, he did so to the applause of a, of a couple of onlookers as well. Well, in a sense, Jesus is our vine. He's the one whom we can depend on. We can rely on him. 
we might be tempted to doubt. There will be times that we're tempted to doubt God for salvation and even Christianity being the way of salvation. But the message from God's word today is that God's, God is faithful and he will bring about his plans. He will save us if we have our trust in Jesus and if we continue in him. Well, let us be people who do continue to rely on Christ and his work for our salvation, for God is faithful to save. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we do thank you that we can read this part of your word and remember about your faithfulness to bring about your plans, to bring descendants out of whom you'd bring a king who became the saviour for the world, that we might be blessed through him. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his work on our behalf. Lord, as we think about our lives and the way that we do fall short and have done so, we give you thanks that you've provided a way for us to enjoy the assurance of being right with you, that it doesn't come by trying to rely on any kinds of works in addition to Jesus, but that faith through Jesus alone is sufficient for our salvation. Lord, we give you thanks for your faithfulness that you do bless us. We thank you for blessing us with being members of your family and for a hope of a place to be with you forever. Lord, we thank you for the blessings of salvation that you've chosen us, that you've predestined us to be people who would be adopted into your family, that you've redeemed us back to yourself, that you've given us your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray for wisdom not to indulge in sin, but to walk with you closely and to continue with our faith in Jesus, holding on to the hope that's in the gospel, uh, that he died and rose again for our sin. We pray that you'd help us to persevere and to bring glory and honour to you in the way that we live. We pray for your help to do that, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.